the teaching on the Four Noble Truths um, that the Buddha offered was something that he didn't teach right away. He would teach first the value and power of giving, dana, giving. providing this entry into the path that is a relational action, the act of giving. Softens, opens the heart to care, and it decenters us from self-fixation. Very, very clever. Not something that has to have some subtle understanding of the human organism, just giving. And of course, you could be refined by how you give and why you give and this kind of thing. But the message was very straightforward. And then he would teach sila, ethical behavior, morality. I think of it as human decency, human maturity. And of course, sila is also relational, providing safety and care in the environment with others. And then he would teach about the heavens, the devas, which is really uh, perhaps a way of referring to the power of loving kindness and compassion, the deva realms, the brahma realms, brahma viharas, divine abidings. And then there's a lovely phrase that you see over and over in the discourses. And then the Buddha would survey the minds of those who were present and determine that their minds were ready for the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> it's beautiful. Whether or not he could read minds, it's certainly possible, but I don't know what's nothing certain, but um, you just get a sense of, okay, let's take the next step. And wham, suffering. That's a big jump from Deva realms, you know? And it just goes right to the heart of, you know, you look at your own life and you say, oh. But until the mind is ready to look, it doesn't make sense to, to speak it. And uh, this was referred to as the teaching unique to the Buddhas. But the point really is that there is a kind of readiness to look at our lives in a frank way. If I boiled it down, I might say it like that.
and perhaps uh, you know you would recognize that we've been doing some of that already when one contemplates aging illness and death one is looking at this area of the human condition the transience of this life and so on the just the difficulties associated with being born into a body and uh, we've also in our practice looked at sensitivity and perhaps come to experience something of this being in contact with the world the delicacy, the tenderness of this life. So as we go further in our practice and bring this Dhamma, these teachings in to the heart, into the mind, into the body to do the work that it was uh, set out to do. I want to say something about how we can practice skillfully with uh, the challenges of, uh, of this heart. It's very easy to interpret pausing and relaxing and so on as a distancing from experience. And that would certainly, if that were the case, echo the kind of bypassing that often happens in meditation, where meditation is a way to escape rather than face the fact of human tenderness and hunger and suffering. We can find a way to kind of prov uh, provide a temporary balm rather than really invite the wisdom in that will free us from the basic con conditions. It's like uh, you know, you have a heart attack and you're taking a couple of aspirin. <coughs> As uh, the Burmese teacher uh, Utejaniya puts it in one of the titles of his little booklets, awareness alone is not enough. And the message there is that wisdom needs to be here. Wisdom needs to do its work. So how do we how do we practice what is pausing and relaxing and so on in such a way that we actually can be with uh, the things as they are in this conditioned constructing 
and uh, sometimes uh, confused body mind. So if we're touching what is difficult in the mind, a contemplation is presented to the mind. Let's say it's something about suffering or something about hunger. Let's take hunger as an example. Tanha, craving, thirst. It's presented to the mind. And this is done intentionally. And there is mindfulness as you do that, which is to say just holding that in mind is already mindfulness. You, you know, if, if it helps you have confidence in that fact, there are multiple discourses where the Buddha talks about holding the teachings in mind as being, uh, and when that's being done, that the factor of awakening of sati is present. Okay, just in case that's helpful to you. So you bring the teaching to mind, you bring the, the suggestion to mind, look over here. That's what that is. It's not just a, some abstract thought. It's, I'm, have a look at this. And you go and you look. And you look at the thoughts, you look at the body. You know, you know how to do your best to take the power of the mindfulness, the steadiness of the concentration, and move into present moment experience. If you're coming out of the moment and spinning away, it's a kind of a, another kind of escape. So what is true now? And the pause then might be like, if I were to give it way too many words, would be something like pause, 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 because here you are touching something that is, you know, very possibly, wow, it's a lot. So how does mindfulness stay present? And it's this moment of the touching of awareness by the felt responses of the body-mind, of the heart, that I want to talk about. Because right there, if the pause is like, pause, ooh, you know, like, stay away, obviously, then whatever uh, is being protected by ignorance will continue to be protected by ignorance and dominate this life. So in that moment, the response of the body-mind is known. And as it touches, there's a dwelling with. This is why right at that moment, pause, relax, allow the kindness, the receiving, the, the uh, kind of soft dwelling with the emergence of experience is being known. So 
what's happening then is you're dwelling right where the constructions of the history, your whole life is creating, you know, each moment. All of your conditioning is basically where we come from each moment, like right now. You are right at the cusp of the fabrication of that whole story. All of my pain, my hunger, my fear, my wanting. And there's mindfulness. And if there's this, if mindfulness distances, then you lose it. It becomes just thinking. It becomes just thinking. And if you fall in to the story, it becomes just automatic emotion. So it's this balance. I, I refer to this relationship as adjacency. Right next to, close, intimate with the experience. Which means, for practice, there's a willingness to risk falling in. It's okay if you fall in. But then you pause. And there's a knowing. And there's a dwelling. And if you fall in again, fine. If you fall in and stay in, and you start talking, and being with another person can make that very compelling, because now they're hearing my story. And there's a tremendous uh, kind of satisfaction of the self in that. It's like, oh, good. I've been, I didn't even know that I had all of this longing. And you're hearing me, and it's beautiful. That's fine. But if you stay there, then it's basically feeding the construction process. It doesn't have the liberating factor of the mindfulness and concentration. So here again we pause. And sometimes, you know, the defenses of the intellect, the thinking, cognizing, making words, making, will take over there and we'll start talking about it. So we're not in the truth of emergence, we're sort of talking about it. It's a very understandable kind of tender defense mechanism to get away from experience. We think about it. So it's, it's a space that we're working in, this space of adjacency that is really supported by the pause and relax, not just the pause, specifically allowing it to be as it is, because it may not be comfortable. You know, you touch your, the, 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 you see how, let's say, a lo your life is being driven by wanting or by fear, and it might very well be that you do want to kind of like, hmm, I think I'll just think about it, you know. But, so the pause relax is the intentional allowing that gradually becomes a, a mode of interacting, of being with experience, just to receive experience. So mindfulness is kind of dwelling and receiving and knowing. And there's not all that storming around everything that comes up, but it can be met. But that can be a while, you know, and 
so the, the, the jumping around in this space of falling in, of thinking about, of sometimes finding a moment and then it's gone, is part of the practice. It's part of learning the practice. There's one more factor, though, that's really beautiful and powerful that's present here. And that is that you're not doing this alone. Everything I just described could have been just you sitting by yourself, contemplating, craving. But you're sitting with another. So, if you have the gift of sitting with another person who is somewhat stabilized in awareness and can receive and uh, remain present, then this also serves as a kind of a beacon for the moment. It helps, main, it helps stabilize that adjacency in the, in the uh, sometimes turbulent experience of knowing things as they are. And if you have your own meditation background, of course, that comes up to support and stabilize as well. That's a kind of a conditioned quality of the mind. And you also have effort, diligence. So if your partner, let's say, tends to uh, not just move into his or her story, but tends to reify yours, like leaning in with the kind of excitement and falling that uh, uh, supports more belief in becoming and falling in, that upsets that balance towards identification. If, that's, if your partner happens to be that way, and it could happen, and if your traditional practice is maybe not so stable, am I just bereft then? Well, chances maybe are better that practice will be difficult for you, but you always, always have the support of diligence, the support of your good intentions, and that is really, really um, fostered, can be fostered by understanding. Like you say, yes, I see where we're going. This is worth the effort. I'm going to do this. And that kind of coming back, coming back, I'm going to do this the best I can. And that's where that each droplet of mindfulness is is led into the pot. It's healing. Right there. Not for just for the future. Right there. It's powerful. Right there. Each time you meet experience, mindfulness strengthens and the construction process uh, doesn't take over just for a moment. And then there's a whole inclination of the mind because each moment is conditioned by prior moments. That's now a prior moment. That wholesome moment of diligence and effort and I'm going to, you know, really practice now. That's also a prior moment, not just all the hard stuff, the difficult stuff. So we still have that capacity. And 
The same is happening, not just when we're speaking, but when we're listening. We remember that listening to another, touching the, both the wisdom of Dhamma, but also listening to another touch the perhaps uh, pain or confusion of this identified life, that's a um, an opportunity to learn from the body-mind processes of another. It's like this window into what was undisclosed before. And it's still right there. Your meditation practice, the mindfulness and the concentration of listening deeply strengthens. And the wisdom, even with someone who's in pain, if they're really touching experience, the human experience, that's wisdom coming in. Wisdom doesn't always look like well-crafted koans. It can be kind of like, you know, a splat on the floor. <coughs> so the power of the relational practice helps us sustain this quality of mindfulness, concentration, and adjacency, and, and investigation, so that the Dhamma can do its work and the sati, the mindfulness, can do its work.